You're listening to MedEx, the Medical Extrusion Podcast. Presented by U.S. Extruders. Extrude with confidence. Custom extrusion equipment designed for you and your application. Welcome back. Today's discussion is focused on polymeric materials for implantable medical devices. And our guest is Katia Tachuk. PhD and Distinguished Engineer at Edwards Life Sciences, Katia does research on polymeric materials from biological and synthetic sources for short-term and long-term medical device implants. Earlier this year, Katia was recognized as an Innovation Award winner by Edwards Life Sciences. Congratulations on that recognition, and thank you for joining the podcast, Katia. Oh, happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting Great. Before we get started, please give our listeners an overview of your background and how you got started in medtech. Oh, no, of course. And uh, that's a hard one. (laughs) Where should I start? (laughs) Okay. So I graduated with a PhD in material science engineering, and I was so eager to work right away. I spent a year working as a scientist in one of the biggest paint encoding manufacturers, which is now PPG Industries. And there I learned what it takes to transition from synthesizing and polymer in a lab, which I did a lot in my PhD, at the very small scale, to make hundreds tons of uh, polymer materials every day in a huge reactor and all the challenges that come with it, right? And I also started to understand much better how challenging it is to make a durable polymer. Because think about it, paints endure a lot of aggressive mm. environments, right? And so that experience laid a great foundation for me to understand how to chemically optimize a polymer in order to achieve a perfect first adhesion to a substrate and then to assure polymer durability under a very aggressive outdoor environments. And that's kind of what I do now, but for medical industry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at that time, I, I still wasn't sure if I wanted to stay in industry or go back to academia and teach. So I applied a lot of opportunities all over the country and I was accepted at UCLA and then I transitioned to Caltech where I spent five years of my life doing a really, really cool science. I can honestly say that the learning curve became exponential when I joined Caltech. I mean, due to a huge number of smart professors and students there. And it was just a privilege to work with Nobel Prize laureates and publish my research in incredibly prestigious journals such as science. And it was fun. But then I also struggled a lot with the fact that there is no much application of what I was doing of my research. And working on a real product seemed to be more fulfilling. And this is when I decided to go back to industry. And medical device industry attracted me a lot. Helping sick people to get better just hooked me immediately. And I I was always very passionate about diagnostic devices as well, because our healthcare system right now, we all know it's much more active than Mm -hmm. preventive. And we need to transition to that preventive mode, right? Start developing more wearables or subcutaneous devices that could record the necessary data in real time and send that information to our physician so we can prevent a disease, right? And I really want to be part of that transition, to a preventive healthcare, and this is the reason why I stayed in medical industry for now more than 15 years. 
And my first job in medical industry was creating a rapid test for HIV, which would tell you in five minutes if you have it, which <laughs> I thought that was amazing. Please. And, yeah. And then I, I went to work for Abbott, which I spent more than five years, different divisions, neuromodulation, cardiac rate management, heart solutions. And I really enjoyed learning about how these devices work, how the FDA approved, and then ultimately how they get implanted on a patient, how they perform on a patient. And I also worked on a lot of next-gen devices, which basically were getting smaller and smarter. <laughs> and we were pushing really the limits of existing technologies, which was really, really cool for me as a scientist to do. And I joined Edwards five years ago, and now I'm focusing not only on synthetic polymers, but also polymers that come from biological sources that are become really relevant nowadays. And I'm doing a lot of research on understanding the biological response as well. So that's a short one. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for that overview. Very interesting. We have some very interesting topics to cover today. But before we do that, please give our listeners kind of a high-level primer on the key design criteria used when evaluating polymers for class three implantable medical devices. Oh, you made it effortless for me. That's an easy question. <laughs> we'll start um, with the easy ones. <laughs> yes, please. So um, the most common, I would say, key design criteria right now is the ability to undergo sterilization process. Because obviously our devices need to be infection-free. We know how bad infectious diseases are going around. So definitely any medical material polymer key design criteria to be resistant to oil cleaving, which is one way of sterilizing them, ethyl and glass, or any EVM sterilization methods. The second important one I would say is their biocompatibility and biostability or biodegradation, whatever it is that you need for your device specifically, and what is it intended for. Uh, the easiest way would be using a material that is already FDA approved and considered to be part of an FDA list of medically approved materials. That would make your job easy. But if it's not, and if it's a biostable material, you have to prove its biocompatibility and biostability. And if it's a biodegradable material, you have to prove its biocompatibility and assure that during the biodegradation of your material, none of the components that are released into the human body are toxic. So that's a challenging one. The third one, I would say the processability for the polymer if we need to use it in medical devices, we need to make shapes of it, use it as a coating, all of those good things. And we need to assure that this processing is not impacting the polymer mm -hmm. and is not really leading to some different mechanical or chemical properties down the road when they plant it, right? Right. And then the, I think the least but not last would be a device interaction or component compatibility of that material, right? So is this material compatible with everything else that is in a device? Wires, ceramics, battery, right? And maybe that material even get degraded by the electric, electric current you're using in your device, right? Like in the sensors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that would be another really important um, design criteria I could think of. So I think the most those four would be the most important one. But now 
the most, in my experience, the most challenging, if I were to select the one that is the most challenging currently uh, design criteria, I would say biocompatibility is one of them. And I would specify it as a biocompatibility of the long-term implantable polymeric materials. Mm -hmm. When we want that sensor to work and function for many, many years on in the human body, how will we prove that to FDA and to ourselves? Because what we're looking for is a safety in patients, right? Ultimately. Right. So I I want to make sure we have not the right nomenclature right now, but basically you asked me specifically about polymer materials, but I'm referring to polymer medical devices that use polymers, right? right? right. Because we, we don't really use a polymer as a medical device unless it's implants for, yep. for repair. But most of the time, I will be referring as a device that use polymeric materials, right? And right. if we were to define what is a biocompatible polymeric device, polymeric material device, I would say any device that passes the testing described per ISO 10993 standard that is used by FDA and many other regulatory bodies is considered biocompatible. But now the issue with that ISO is that when it was created many, many years ago, no one knew we'll be having people walking with pacemakers for 40 or 45 years, right? So no one really knew how much is the long-term, how long is the long-term, and how to test how much it changes mm -hmm. after 20, 30, 40 years, the device. How can we assess that? So when we're assessing this long-term biocompatibility or class three medical devices, the truth is we don't have a really ISO standard to fall or use, mm -hmm. right? So every medical device company, we come up with our own testing methodology and but we seem never having a consortium on it. Like we don't have one we all agree we should be using. Yeah. And I would love that to change. I, I would love to, at least for the same family of the devices, to have some kind of documented test methods or, or approach that we could use. And um, after many, many years to being in medical devices industry, I learned how to challenge each device, not only the component, not, not only the polymer, the material at the material level, but also at the device level to understand the primer failure mode when it comes to long-term biocompatibility assessment, right? But I wish... As I already said, medical industry came together a bit more mm -hmm. and document some of them in a more formal way. Okay. Yeah. A standard, a standardization. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Interesting. So on that realm, based on your research and the research of others in med tech, how successful is in vitro accelerated aging tests in determining or predicting in vivo performance and biostability of implantable materials? Yeah, I, I mean, the fastest answer, I think, is it depends. <laughs> <laughs> so in vitro accelerated aging testing do successfully predict the in vivo performance of certain devices or materials. Mm -hmm. For example, 
if we have a very passive device, like a birth control device, I don't know if you guys are familiar, there's an implantable birth control devices out there, several of them. And those get, they get implanted in your arm, for example, for three years. And those devices were initially approved with just accelerated in vitro data. And over years, it proved to be absolutely accurate, right? So now when we're talking about medical devices that require some kind of mechanical performance, like heart valves, or electronic performance, like pacemakers or neurostimulation devices, sensors, accelerated aging tests are becoming less and less accurate in predicting in in vivo performance. It doesn't mean they don't work. I'm not saying that. They do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you should perform them, absolutely. But it just means that you have to take the result with a grain of salt because you have other variables that impacting that durability. And those factors are mostly the based on the biological response or in vivo response that also is quite a bit challenging on the device performance over the years. So if you, if I were to come back to your question, when you said, what is the main limitation, you know, when it comes to in vivo analysis, I would say first and the big one is that every animal model has its deficiencies. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it is what it is. I mean, animals are different species. Like they grow different at, at different rates. They have different sizes. Tommy's. And uh, as good as we can see the results in an animal, it still will be not a human being. And another big limitation is time. That we can't really keep maintaining an animal for last 10 yeah. years for testing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, and at this point, honestly, like plus five years is the longest device implementation I've heard of, right? That's it. Like one longer than five years, what shall we do? The only thing we have is accelerated aging. And we need to do it. That's the only our only option. But what I learned is that it's the combination of a lot of them which will really give us a better understanding failure modes when it comes to longer term performance. And we need to again, I think I'm repeating myself, which I had to do, that medical industry needs to come together and agree on using those prediction methods, right? So because we're doing in vitro accelerating aging in order to be able to predict 20 years ahead, 40 years ahead, and um, we're still not even there yet as an industry to agree on the mathematical prediction models to assure 20 plus or 30 plus years durability. And then we also need to come up with challenging the devices in a more clinically relevant ways as well, using solutions that are similar to uh, a human body, right? When it comes to pH, when it comes to enzyme concentration, protein concentrations, and things like that. Okay. Very interesting. Thank you. You recently spoke about the challenges with developing biomaterials for implantable medical devices and how institutional and regulatory processes are hindering the development of next generation smart biomaterials that could revolutionize medical technology. Please share your thoughts on this topic. I mean, yeah, it's a hard one. (laughs) We know how complex electronic medical devices are. They have 
PCBs, wiring, enclosures, batteries, and they've been already, many of them have been already implanted in patients for plus 30 years. So technically, for many of them, we prove we have proven they are biocompatible, they are durable, they are biostable. And on the paper, there is not much to do mm-hmm. <laughs> other than you, if you want to develop completely new device from scratch that will measure different things that are not measured right now or deliver a different technology whatsoever. So it's obviously doesn't make sense for a big medical devices company when they make small changes into the existing devices, go through a full approval, FDA approval again, because they changed the coding material, any small polymer component they have. So they don't do that just because we already know the approval process is lengthy and animal models are costly, things like that. So there is no much of innovation happening on the current devices for those reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if we're talking about new devices, completely new, it would make sense, right, for a medical industry to say, well, if I'm going through the full process of approving this new, completely new from scratch device, then I could now include in really innovative materials that might have, but make, might make my device much more reliable, more durable, better. But even in this case, medical industry still doesn't do it. And it's because first of all, there is the mentality of spending less resources on developing anything new as much as they can. Because it's already so lengthy and expensive to just going through the actual approval process, FDA approval right. process. Right. So if the medical industry can spend less money on engineering, re-engineering and testing, they try, right? Because the only thing they want is to give patients something they can live longer with, right? Uh, so delaying this seemed to be not convenient for anyone. Right. Right. And I did, I believed I did some statistics in the past. And the medical industry overall is using only around 10 chemically different polymers. And they've been used for the past like 40 years without any real innovation to them. It's the same thing. We have five big suppliers that make them and we trust them. And uh, even if they are not a perfect fit, scientists go out of their way of combine two of them to achieve the same thing and make a composite, which is not really an innovation. Mm -hmm. So, and that's where we, that's where we are in this vicious circle, right? And it's interesting because I do a lot of R&D, so I interact a lot with Academy and Academy is a completely different story. There's so much innovation going on Mm -hmm. and so many recently developed materials have amazing mechanical, biological properties that we could potentially use with much better outcomes on the patients than those polyethylenes, polypropylenes, polyesters that are like old school and we've been using it for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And don't get me started on the smart materials that when it's talking about an academy, but no one is really trying to even use it in medical industry. Right. So, I mean, I think I spoke too much, but... Basically, like to conclude it, mm-hmm. to conclude the segment, I would say two main roadblocks and are, there are two main roadblocks in medical industry. I'm not saying they're bad or good. I'm just saying they exist, right? right. And the first one is 
comes from the actual doctors and they are absolutely normal, but very conservative approach that any innovative polymeric material used in the medical devices will require at least 10 years of clinical data before even considering it to use for longer term implantable medical devices, right? 10 years now, because we have patients for 40 years. So the minimum Mm. became 10 years. It's so challenging. And another big roadblock is that we still haven't defined or validated the ASTM or ISO standard testing for accelerated aging. So mm-hmm. we don't have a good test method to prove that the durability of those materials in clinical settings or even correlate and compare between in vitro accelerated testing that we can run all day to an in vivo biological response, right? And implantation. So really work hard on, on closing that gap, at least work, make sure we have the real tests and we can correlate them somehow to in vivo performance. And then we can maybe change doctor's mindset, which will never happen. <laughs> and I think it will not happen for yeah. safety of our patients. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of work still to be done there. It sounds like, yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that for implantable devices, such as heart valves, stents, grafts, ports, Biofilms are the main culprit for infection due to the bacterial adhesion to the implantable device. We know that antimicrobial additives such as silver ions can be blended with silicone and polyurethane materials to to inhibit the biofilms from creating on the surface of the devices. Walk us through some of the industry research and development that has gone into antimicrobial agents and polymers for implantable medical devices. Yeah. So first of all, I should start saying there's a lot of research in antimicrobial technologies. It's not a new thing. It's been explored extensively and medical industry does invest a lot of money in doing it. And there are literally companies out there offering you the best and the greatest antimicrobial coating, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, antimicrobial material that you could put, they claim, everywhere, right? And any of your devices, just conveniently incorporate in your device without impacting any of their functionality. But the main challenge with most of them is the... We're coming back to the same doctor's approach, is the need for more preclinical studies, and will design multi-center clinical trials to evaluate the, the actual benefit of that antimicrobial surface. Because what happens with antimicrobial agents is that they always work very well in one bacteria, but they will never work on all of them. Uh. Right? It's not possible unless you combine tons of them, which it's also chemically impossible, right? Because many of them are incompatible. And the, there are different antimicrobial agents, like, for example, antibiotics, which are a so-called broad spectrum, meaning they do kill many bacteria, right, pretty well. But then the problem with those, that is an antibiotic is considered a drug for a patient. So it immediately converts your device, your medical device, that is already maybe even approved five, by 510 can take 10K, it converts so-called in a combination device, which requires an, a separate FDA approval 
and it's 10 times and maybe even higher than 10 mm-hmm. harder to get an approval for a combination device in comparison with 510k device so then antibiotics become many times out of a question because the companies that make medical devices many times don't even know about the 510 about the combination device approval process and don't want to go through it without really knowing if the clinical performance is there, right? Mm-hmm. Now, my favorite, my personally favorite technologies when it comes to antimicrobial is the polymer-based antimicrobial materials, right? Those are not considered drugs, right? So then you could skip potentially the approval, a combination device approval process. Mm-hmm. And I work, I personally work on one of them, which was a antimicrobial polypeptides, it basically like a protein, like your hair that you could use as an antimicrobial. Hmm. And it has all the good stuff. You don't, you won't need an additional FDA approval um, assessment. And then you could easily apply it to your devices. But the truth is that how will you start proving it's efficacy becomes complex from a medical industry, right? So one important part of killing microbes is preventing so-called formation of biofilms. And biofilms is the same infection, but imagine it as like on steroids, right? That that, that, uh, bacteria just lives there and somehow survives for for a long time and leads to chronic inflammation, all those bad thing. So prevention of biofilm is incredibly needed in medical industry. But then because biofilm by nature is trained to survive in various, in various very harsh environments, it's when bacteria becomes stronger because there is tons of it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, proving with your new antimicrobial technology, biofilm prevention it's becoming, it's incredibly challenging, right? Mm-hmm. You can, creating a biofilm is challenging. It takes time and effort. And then proving that your material will kill that biofilm is even more challenging. So you can't really test in in vitro all the microbial species. You can, you can do combinations of them, but you don't know if that will still decrease a biofilm formation down the road or biofilm formation incidence. So your only option is really clinical studies, right? Mm -hmm. But then clinical studies are so expensive. So then you need this like cost-benefit analysis being performed, right? Where, okay, what is my infection incidence, right? What is my infection rate? Is it high enough so I can invest that amount of money right, in this new technology? And the answer is, with our good sterilization method, infection rates are really low. They're under 1% many times. Uh, and and that's where it gets tricky and not even worth it for, yeah. for many medical devices companies. There are some of the devices out there that have much higher infection rates. Most of them are not long-term implantable devices, but short-term that have to have some capability of change and use. And those are cheaper by nature because mm-hmm. they are short-term than replaceable. And then it becomes, again, cost and benefits analysis. 
is it better for me to just change it more often, right? Other than investing in expensive antimicrobial technology and just put on the actual device, right? Right, right. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Let's turn our focus on hydrophilic polymer networks or hydrogels that are used to promote natural healing. Polymeric hydrogels are used for tissue engineering, medical implants, and drug delivery. Please share with our listeners basic technical overview of hydrogels and their effectiveness in tissue regeneration. No, see, yeah, I would be happy to do it. I, hydrogels are one of my favorite materials. Actually, the antimicrobial polypeptides I mentioned earlier were hydrogels. And okay. we felt like why they were so efficient was mostly because they were hydrogels. So we were allowing for the bacteria to penetrate faster. So we, they would literally kill faster the bacterial and will be aware and a more efficient antimicrobial for that reason. But, you know, like uh, as a background, scientific community noticed quite a while ago that maintaining an open wound moist, for example, and I'm just giving you a, a, as an example of open wound moist, for example, in, if it's hydrated, makes cell proliferation and therefore healing process much faster, right? So many scientists launch on it immediately and start focusing on developing different materials that can retain water as much as they can. And in that, that was the first medical place, medically approved place where hydrogels were extremely efficient and were widely accepted. And right now there are thousands, I think thousands of wound healing devices mm-hmm. uh, that based on synthetic hydrogels, like polyurethanes or PPG, like polypropylene glycols. Yep. And also bio- biologically sourced hydrogels are like alginates, chitosans, all of those, right? And don't forget the most important hydrogel for human beings and probably all the life is the collagen, right? Mm-hmm. People forget that, you know, collagen is just a protein-based hydrogel, right? So hydrogels are part of our lives. We, we are made from hydrogels. And of course, they will be a future, I think, as a future materials in medical industry. Right now, the biggest application for hydrogels is wood healing, wood dressings, burns, pressure sores, ulcers, like things like that. Then there is a lot of gels um, use the lubricious coatings in like transcatheter therapy, stents, things like that, yeah. Yeah. balloons. But I'm not aware... And that doesn't mean they're not existing, but they're not as much used anywhere else. And I think the biggest roadblock for hydrogels right now is their mechanical durability. They are just incredibly good at absorbing water, but really incredibly bad with staying, staying (laughs) for longer Mm -hmm. term, maintaining shape. They're not dimensionally reliable. Because you can't really control many times how much water will you be absorbing over time. So those things are delaying hydrogel development and hydrogel use on the medical devices. Because medical industry is all about reliability, right? If I'm Mm going to give you a device, I don't want to then say to you that something is gone from it very quickly when that something is really good for you, right? Yeah, yeah. So... 
I think that has been de- delaying a little bit more the use of hydrogels in medical industry. That being said, I'm a huge fan. I think it's going to just get better and better over time. And there will be a moment that most of our sensors will have a hydrogel-based coating because we just Hmm. know at this point that having a layer of water between your device and, uh, and blood and our cells and our immune system is 100 times better to just a you know solid surface non non water absorbable surface right for many reasons cell proliferation mm-hmm. um uh, immune response healing all of those things so are hydrogels used as the delivery system for drugs or minimally invasively absolutely they do okay and one of us that's another actually will become a very big application of hydrogels because nothing like getting water into your device and dissolving your drug with water and anything else, right? Mm-hmm. You you want to that drug be solubilized before getting into your body. Nothing like a hydrogel. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. Katia, this has been a, a really interesting conversation on these topics. And it, I'm so glad that you were able to join us today. Thank you so much. No, of course, anytime. Please invite me again. I will be back. I We will take you up on that. Trust me. <laughs> Thank you for listening to MedEx, the medical extrusion podcast presented by U.S. Extruders. Please subscribe to make sure you're getting the latest episodes. All links are available in the show notes.